You are listening to Sick Biz Buzz with me, Hillary Jastrom. Welcome back to Sick Biz Buzz, the sickest podcast empowering chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs and remote workers, and the only podcast of its kind, 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 to our knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. I don't know why I added that in. It felt right. Sometimes you just have to do what feels right. It's a little bit of a hint of what this show is going to be about. Today, we are going to talk about the elusiveness of good news in the midst of diagnosis, in the midst of living a new life, or maybe your life with a disability has changed in some way where you now have to pay more careful attention to how you're moving about or you're dealing with the worsening of your symptoms. We are programmed. We are pre-programmed. We are pre-pre-programmed to receive change in a negative manner. Now, you might think listening to that, I sound like a crazy person because how could a diagnosis ever possibly give me a gift? You want to run away screaming from that. That is not the reality. This is not a gift. That's fear and anger and all of those stages of acceptance hitting you and trying to bat that gift away from you. And it does happen. And it is relevant, and your feelings are relevant. But there is a gift. Whether you are a fan of woo-woo or not, universal love, whatever your spiritual designation, I believe that, and I hope we can find common ground on this, that things happen to teach us. It's deeper than going into things happen for a reason. Sometimes we don't know the why of it, but more importantly, we need to tap into what am I supposed to do with this new reality? Maybe I'll never know why I got sick. And that's okay. But I can figure out what I'm supposed to do with the new reality without even giving a fig about why I got sick. But how are we supposed to be that person that we know we are every single day that we've grown up with? We've chosen these habits. We've chosen this job. We've chosen these people. This is our family. And everything changes and you don't feel like that person anymore. I liken it to healing from my eating disorder. I've talked about this sometimes, not a lot. So maybe you've heard the story before. I had an eating disorder for probably close to 30 years. It started rearing its head in the form of needing to control something in my out-of-control life. It got really nasty in my later 20s and peaked in, I think it was almost 40. I'd gotten used to being anemic every day to the point that you just live with very low hemoglobin levels. You learn when you need to sit down or faint. But I wanted to heal in my whole life as things were going wrong. I just had this urge and this pulling to heal and to be better and to learn and to climb out of this rut. So I embarked on a journey to heal, seeing three doctors between six and nine times a week. That was the only way they would agree to my treatment without admitting me. And I knew I would be in treatment with girls who were not much older than my children and said that was a wake-up call. That was a body slam wake-up call right there. 
my whole point is that I had to learn to live with a different body. I wear a different clothes size. I wear a different bra size. I wear a different pants size. My face looks different. My weight is distributed differently. I I occupy space differently. That's a good change, even though sometimes it didn't feel like a good change. But change is upsetting. Change is uprooting. Change will shake you to your very foundation. That is how we are programmed. We want the same, same, same. We want structure, structure, stability. Change can't be good. Well, it was a great change for me. I still do battle the demon eating disorder in my head. I call him Ed after eating disorder. I still battle him. And even though it was a positive change, and even though it required a mindset shift that took place over dedicated days and days and days and then months and months and years and years, it's still a change. So let's flip this. Let's do a 180. Let's say you had a great childhood. Fairly easy. Few bumps and bruises in terms of the fact your family was solid. Friends were solid. Maybe you went through some pain periodically. But for the most part, you had a safety net under you and you felt secure. In that position, we would think ideally we should be able to enter into adulthood fairly unscathed feeling like we can be productive at some point. We can figure out this adulting thing. So if you've been living your life in this manner, right in the medium, how in the world can we extract any type of positivity out of a diagnosis when it feels like all there is in life is negative change? There's a way to position your diagnosis in your head. And it starts with looking for gratitude. So that's what I want to dedicate today's show to is the top 10 reasons or the top 10 positive facts about having a chronic illness or a disability. Some of these facts that I'm going to talk to you about, I have lived myself and reflect my attitude. Some of these facts you may not agree with and you may even take umbrage with them and feel like I'm poking fun at the situations or diseases, I can assure you I'm not, but that a sense of humor and a sense of being okay to embrace the good things in the suck is critical. It is absolutely critical for our healing. So I'll give you a little freebie here before we start the top 10 list. I might say dry shampoo, for example. Because that is one of the things that is the best damn invention on the planet. As a person with a chronic illness, and I know a lot of you are nodding your heads because you know where I'm going to go with this. It's hard to wash your hair as much as you should. The energy to take a shower, I would have to take a nap after and change up my whole hygiene routine. So you can understand why dry shampoo would rank up there. So without further ado, let's talk about the top 10 positive facts of having a chronic illness or disability. I hope that you enjoy some of the deeper aspects of looking at your disease or disability in a brighter light. And I hope that you can laugh along with me too. And these are not in order of weighted priority, by the way. They're just 
in any order at all. Rearrange them if you want. Number one is parking. Maybe you're rolling your eyes. Keep on rolling. It used to piss me off. I had a coworker when I first got sick and I was given a handicap placard. And I was even allowed to park in the CEO's spot because they wanted to be close to the door because everybody could see me very visibly stumbling around the hallways. But it used to piss me off that he would say, hey, at least you have a great parking spot now. I wish I had that. And at the time, I thought, hey, I wish you'd move out of my space right now because I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> Hindsight is 2020. I can look back and say I can understand where that person was probably coming from and wanting to give me a little present up in the form of even though you're sick, you're still winning over me. You still have an advantage. I can see that now when people say things like that. It's really supposed to make you feel better. And I don't hold resentment at all. But his remark opened my eyes to the fact that the person that you're saying this to is the person in charge of the feeling it evokes. Meaning, if we're going to go back to Mr. Brick's English class from Central High School, shout out to Mr. Brick, who is astounding. He was my creative writing teacher. And I have carried him with me as inspiration and support, whether he knows it or not. So I hope this message finds its way to him. He never gave up. So if I'm the subject or you are the subject in the sentence the person is talking about, you are the privileged one with the parking placard, privilege, quote unquote. The subject, you, then gets to decide how that makes you feel. So I decided I'm going inward and saying this person was at a loss of words. They did not know how to support me in a meaningful way. And what came out of their mouth was a reflection of that. I also know as a chronically ill and disabled person that I have a responsibility. Sometimes I don't want that responsibility because I think I have enough to deal with. Thank you very much. And that responsibility can shove it. That responsibility is an opportunity to ruminate on what people say before jumping to any conclusions, trying to figure out the motivation behind it. I also give people a break. I don't assume anybody's being an ass to me. I assume they're uncomfortable. They're trying to cover up silence. They're making inappropriate jokes because it fills a void in the tension. And they get a pass for that. And you know what? I get a pass for parking. I get a pass for that, and I get a pass for enjoying waking up in my bed every day and working out of my house and knowing that I can have as much coffee as I want. I can control the level of creamer I want, the snacks I want, the comfort I want, the coziness I want, and all of those benefits. I get a pass to do that. When you are chronically ill and disabled and you're working for yourself, you get to enjoy those things because sometimes it feels like there aren't a lot of things or realities to enjoy about your life on the regular. So give yourself permission to love your freaking parking placard. Use it as much as you need it. Number two, naps. When I was a little girl and I wanted to take a nap, I remember being forced when the sun was high in the sky to go in my room and lay there on the bed with the delicious tempting sun just trickling all over me. And trying to lure me outside. And I would have to stay there and squeeze my eyes shut and try and sleep. And it felt like punishment. 
I didn't understand why I needed to rest, although oftentimes I would fall asleep because moms usually do know best about those things, don't they? And now I have to take a nap almost every single day. And I give myself permission to be okay with that. And not only to be okay with that, but when it is time for that nap to celebrate it because it is a time for taking care of my body. And I'm celebrating me and my self-awareness that I'm blocking that time for myself. So I sink into my pillow. I let my body relax into the bed deeper with each breath. If my heated blanket is on, I get in contact with all the places on my body that is touching me, where it's warm. I do this without guilt. I encourage you to do the same thing because self-care should not come with a side of guilt. It's actually kind of defeating the purpose in the first place. Make the space in your life to take care of you and don't beat yourself up because you have to take a moment, an hour, or a couple of hours to reset your body so you can be the best person that you can be for not only you but everybody in your life and business. Number three, illness brought me the ability to be still, still rather, and getting to know who I really am. We're affected by illness, ongoing pain, uncomfortable symptoms that just seem to come out of thin air because our body is out of order. When that happens, you're forced to be still until you can regain your footing, your internal footing. There have been times I've been in the grip of such a flare that the only thing that I can do is close my eyes. That nasty knot of a headache rooted at the back of my neck is agonizing. My face is burning. My eye sockets are throbbing. And I have no choice but to make a choice of how I am going to approach this healing moment for myself. That means I get to know myself. I get to tell myself I am whoever I happen to be that day or however I'm striving toward a goal in my life. I get to be that person. I don't have to be what other people have deemed me to be. I can take that time on me and where I want to go. I don't spend my time belaboring mistakes, second-guessing what I have done, wondering how people could leave me, how they could love me, who would want to do business with me what I said, what I did, that shit's all in the past. Even if it happened like a day before, what I do is I close my eyes, I let myself go on a journey of where I want to go to be who I want to be, I'm hoping to become, which as I get older is a little more patient, compassionate, and tolerant. I want to be calmer and more deliberate. So I ask myself, how am I showing up for other people? How am I doing trying to move my body every day? Am I listening enough? Am I feeding myself the right things in my life? Not only nutrition, but the company that I keep, what I'm reading, what I'm watching, what I'm listening to. I ask myself about you guys. What do you want to hear? What's helping you that you need more of? What are you paying attention to? If you work 60, 70 plus hours a week, you would not have this time. And you get to give thanks 
for having it. Four is no excuse for toxicity. Being sick means that you have to be guarded with your time because you cannot stress yourself out. You go through a rapid decline when you do that. Your well of stamina drains. You do not have the things that you need or the fuel you need to accomplish what is required in your life. Eliminating toxicity is a no-brainer. Actually, I don't like that phrase. Inherent in it is blaming because if you elect to do otherwise, and obviously you don't have a brain, is what it seems to be saying. Eliminating toxicity means you become the shepherd of yourself, the guardian and protector of yourself, and that you learn how to reinforce boundaries without emotion if possible, and that you insist upon good treatment. Eliminating toxicity can mean any number of things. Say you have a neighbor who pulls you into conversations and makes you susceptible to feeling inadequate. It's draining and eroding. Maybe they're trying to one-up you in the driveway all the time. Maybe you know a cage rattler who says things like, I really like your new haircut, but I liked it before much better. Your reality is not everybody else's reality is the other point I want to make. So there is a saying, there are multiples of you out there that are represented by the people that you have run into and interacted with in your life. So your mom sees one form of you, your spouse sees another form of you. You exist in the world in these different forms. And if you talk to each individual person, they would say you're a different person than the other person would say. So wherever you left your footprint or however you were in life, if you were raging, if you were sad, if you were depressed, if you were lashing out, if you were fearful, that's you. That's a version of you out there in the world. And a lot of people think, well, that was me. And it is me. It's who I am. And I don't have any choice but to be me. But just because it's out there in the world does not mean that is the only you that is ever available in your life. It doesn't mean that you're incapable of doing other things or accomplishing other feats. It doesn't mean that your words, your vision, your mission, your existence don't matter to other people who get it and who need it and you. We have the power who we want to be in our story every day. Number five, the lax exercise schedule. I used to go to the gym. Occasional gym rat. I've been there in fits and starts when I was a teenager, paying for the membership by working at the grocery store. I actually had to take the bus there. I actually would get my ass on the bus. How's that for motivation? I think about that now. I'd be like, get on the bus. That's it. That's my job for the day. That's my accomplishment. <laughs> but I would, I would, I'd, I'd go on the bus. And then I would pop out of the gym and I'd end the membership and then I'd try and go back and I found yoga after I got sick. I couldn't do yoga without needing to be escorted out of the class because I couldn't stand or walk on my own and I would have to go to the car with the managers at Champlin Lifetime who were amazing, by the way. I met many of them 
because they helped me get to the car as I cried every single time I went to that car. I cried. I couldn't do it. I showed up. I tried. I wondered what happened in my life, where it had been, why I couldn't do something so simple as walk on my own, and why in the ever-loving hell, everybody felt like they had to stare at me all the time, and I was trying to make this silent escape. So now I get to call the shots, and I ride a little exercise bike that lives in our living room named Wesley. Wesley is a recumbent bike. He's designed for me to be used at my pace so that I can continue to maintain muscle tone as much as strength as much as possible. But I don't have to pressure myself with New Year's resolutions and say, I'm going back to the gym. I need to do this, that, and the other thing. And I still love myself. I'm not into some type of contest to see how cruel I can be to myself about my body, my weight, my shape. Whether I did or didn't do something that day, I try my very best. And that's it. I don't have excuses for not going to the gym. I have facts. And guess what? I get to freaking enjoy them. Number six, spending more time with the people you love. I stayed home for five years with my kids. They were in school the majority of the time. My daughter was home for one year. I blew that year, by the way. I only took her to the zoo once, and I have regrets about that every day. When I was sick, I was pulled out of a very high-paced job where I was handling the marketing for a large regional furniture company. I adored my job. But then suddenly, I was back at home with the permission and the validation to be sick, to need to rest, to take care of myself and focus on me. After decades of being a mother and being a person who saw struggling as a regimen. And I received some amazing moments out of this time with my children because I got sick. I was able to be there for them as they needed me during the most critical times of their growing up. Being a teenager. And if I had worked those monstrous hours, I would not be as close to my kids as I am today. I was forced to stop reacting emotionally because I would throw myself into a flare. And doing so enabled the relationship that I had with my children to flourish. It enabled me to appreciate my husband, not for who I wanted him to be, but for who he is. I didn't sit and spin over how he would clean the kitchen versus how I would do it. I didn't have the time nor the energy nor the interest to dissect how he would cook dinner versus how I would do it because I didn't have a choice. I needed to accept the smaller things in life and focus on the deeper meaning in this re these relationships. And I never, ever, ever could have done it without my diseases. Seven is discovering self-care as a need. Getting sick also brought with it strange little gifts, and that is discovering self-care as a need. That's one of the gifts. Years ago, I had a friend tell me that I needed to take care of me, and I said, I don't know how to do that. I was a young mother to three kids, probably eight and under at that time, and I used to stay up until midnight cleaning the house every night. Parents, I'm sure you can relate to this, how you just kill yourself over making sure the laundry is done. It's folded and in the kids' room so they have something to wear to school. 
the dishes are clean. Everybody's homework is done for the night. They've had baths. Everything is picked up. Special projects are handled. I had conditioned myself to not take care of myself for a very long time. My friend told me I needed to take care of myself as if I was my own little girl. What would I do when she was sad, when she was afraid or frustrated? What is at the base or the core of being a little human being? When they need you. That little girl didn't need self-recriminations that she had failed in some way or she didn't need frustration that she didn't know what she was doing in the moment. She didn't need to be filled with regrets that she had made decisions that weren't quite lining up. She needed arms and a warm place to be accepted, which includes the mistakes she had made and how she had lacked in taking care of herself. Now I know it is crucial to take care of yourself every single day, especially if you have a chronic illness. Because if you don't, you will flare and all of a sudden your best laid plans go right out the window. Because here's a, just take a guess at what you can't do then. All the hands are waving in the air. You can't follow through. You have to hand off a project, a job, a meeting, or a responsibility, or whatever the case is. Because you can't do it because you didn't take care of you. Give yourself permission to take care of you every day when you need it to respond to it. It is what you need the most. Number eight, I am grateful for doing more of what I love. Doing what you love is such a rarity in our lives because we are oftentimes forced to do what we think we are supposed to do or what we have to do to survive. And so, to figure out how to do what you love, we don't get that time. It can even feel like a luxury. I do feel lucky sometimes. To be able to remake my entire life into what I needed it to be. It was kind of like my life had an error 404. You know, you see that white screen that pops up when there's a website error. Everything crashed. The component isn't working. It won't work with this other gadget or gizmo. You can't use a rebuilt motor. Nothing you can do will restore this operating system. The only thing you can do is reboot. And when you are given that gift, you get to appreciate it. You get to appreciate gift, the gift of time to do more of what you love. And reworking your life into what you want it to be. If you hate what you're doing at work, great. You get to redo it. Hate how your life has become on the schedule that it is. Change it all up. You get a do-over. You get to redefine relationships. You get to reach for joy. Instead of feeling as though you have to be con confined with bad treatment. Or you have to contend with bad treatment. You get a do-over to do whatever the hell you want. Number nine is being forced to leap. When we are forced into a situation that we don't want to do, and maybe it's not that we don't want to do it, but it's that we are afraid to do it, we don't have a choice. 
And when we don't have a choice, sometimes those are the times when we arise like the phoenix that we are. We succeed because to not succeed means to die. If I had not succeeded in running a business, I would not have been able to take care of my family. We would have significantly suffered major lifestyle and life comfort and life-threatening changes. There was no choice now. If you had said, why don't you start a business? To me, when I was in great health, I, I would have thought, well, I can't do it right now. I would have given you all the excuses in the world. I had padded everything around me with the potential to fail, cushioning myself with excuses. You can't do that, I would think. You need to take more time and set up X, Y, and Z so that you don't fail and fall on your face. So when that choice is taken away from you and you have to figure it out, you are going to swim harder and farther than you have ever swum in your whole life or swam in your whole life. And for that, I'm grateful because I would not have this fulfilling life that I have right now. Yes, it sucks. The control is taken away from you. You feel like you're not done. I kept saying when I got sick, I'm not done. I'm not done here. I love this job. I haven't done enough with it. I haven't developed it enough. I haven't wrung enough bliss out of it. But when you don't have a choice, you're going to crash. Knowing that you have no choice makes you grind harder than you ever possibly could. It makes you rewrite your entire life and what you do on a day-to-day basis to succeed. No, it's not optimal to go about a change this way. It's not some utopian ideal. But there is a gift in that you are finally forced to do what you want to do. And maybe in my case what you have been dreaming of doing all along. Number 10, and super high on my list of loving this about my disability and my diseases are all the fuzzy socks and tools of comfort. So end this on a high note. You know, I never had put much thought into socks. Socks, to me, conjured up a memory of going shopping with my grandpa and my sister, and I knew that my grandpa didn't have a lot of money, so we would say, okay, we're going to go to Zantigo's today, which is a really cool Mexican restaurant that I think there's like one left in the entire world. Grandpa would take us there. That was our place. And I would get excited to go to Zantigo's, and then Grandpa would say, and then we're going to go to Target. And he could say, you can get whatever you want at Target. My eyes would grow big for a minute. And then my sister and I would say, we don't want anything but new socks. Because we knew that Grandpa didn't have a lot of money. And so we would find the funniest socks that we could. And it was a wonderful memory. And now fuzzy socks are mandatory. Because I have nerve pain and neuropathy in my feet. I get it in my legs. So sometimes even fuzzy pants are mandatory. 
certainly no kind of scratchy material ever comes near my body anymore. It is a temple of comfort. I walk around like I'm a stuffed animal sometimes, and I love it. But I don't let that logy feeling penetrate into my mind that I'm cozy, and so my work ethic is going to be cozy. It's still really powerful, even though I'm dressed like a teddy bear. But I let myself enjoy the feelings of pampering myself, and you can do that too. Whether it's fuzzy socks or pants or a hoodie or whatever you have that makes you feel better about yourself. That is your top 10 list of really awesome facts that come right along with having a chronic illness or disability. And I hope you really enjoyed it today. I hope that it starts you searching for different gratitude in your life on your own because this is a mood changer. That is one of our criteria for posting the job. You must be able to make a living wage with it. So I hope you find us on Facebook. And I thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Sick Biz Buzz. Have a great week. Until next time, be well.